Hello, and welcome to Within Normal Limits, COPIC's podcast featuring discussions of patient safety in the modern healthcare world. I'm your host, Eric Zacharias, a risk manager and patient safety consultant for COPIC, as well as a practicing internal medicine physician. Thank you for listening and helping us further COPIC's mission of improving medicine in the communities we serve. Joining me to talk on the topic of informed consent is Dr. Jeff Varnell. Dr. Varnell uh, practices a general surgeon uh, for many years, and now he works full-time as a patient safety risk manager consultant for Copic. Dr. Varnell, welcome. Thank you, Eric. So before we talk more about informed consent, which is a, a topic you're an expert on and have, have spoken to numerous physician and resident audiences, tell me a little bit about your, your surgical background. What were uh, some of the procedures you really enjoyed doing when you were a surgeon? Um, I practiced general surgery for 20 years before I came here to Copic. Uh, I enjoyed particularly when the laparoscopic revolution came in and we had the opportunity to learn uh, many new skills, uh, which actually we feel really benefited our patients. Yeah, I bet the, the, the change in the hospital stays for some of those procedures was uh, greatly reduced over the course of your practice. Well, that plus the pain levels and really our ability to do uh, surgery on patients that may have been uh, otherwise compromised. Yeah, well, great. Well, let's talk about informed consent. And I think what people will find useful is having some information about your experience with this topic, some of the key points that you like to share with practicing physicians, and maybe uh, some insights that uh, aren't necessarily so obvious. And a lot of physicians will ask, why is informed consent so important? And as, as I recall, you've given several reasons. And so what are some of the things that an audience might want to know that informed consent is so important for? I think many physicians think of informed consent as kind of an obligation uh, that they need to uh, go through in order to start treatment for their patients. And uh, I tend to look at it really as an opportunity to recruit some of the benefits that can be uh, enjoyed uh, by uh, engaging in the process and recognizing the opportunities there. Uh, there are many patient safety benefits that accrue from uh, an adequate informed consent process. Uh, not only their own satisfaction, but their ability to comply with treatment recommendations, and even some studies that have shown that there's uh, opportunity for reduced pain usage, reduced hospital stays, and maybe even reduced complications after procedures. Well, it sounds like better, better outcomes, and even though I guess you could look at it as one more requirement, the reality is it sounds like it's actually the glass is half full or even more than half full with informed consent. You get better outcomes and you perhaps enhance the rapport of the physician-patient relationship. Certainly that. And again, uh, it, if there is a complication that occurs, uh, the informed consent process can be the first step towards a disclosure process. And uh, the patients are aware of those possibilities and when they happen, it's much easier to uh, accept uh, the reality and, and move on with recovery. So this is an area that, that was new to me when I first heard you give this talk to some residents at Copic, and that was the form, the actual piece of paper that is stuck in front of a patient and signed. 
that's not really the whole process, or that's not even necessarily required. Uh, what actually is informed consent? What are, we, what are we doing here? I think that's a good way to look at it. So differentiating between the paper and the process. Uh, so the paper is the documentation that the process has occurred. The process is required in, in uh, the legal structure. Uh, the, the paper is what, how we can document that that process actually occurred. And uh, it is through the process uh, that we can not only uh, meet our legal obligations for obtaining an informed consent, but also, again, start to recruit that uh, patient relationship that uh, is the real key to uh, achieving all the benefits from an adequate informed consent process. And ultimately what we try to achieve is what is now a term of art called shared decision making. And uh, in that situation, uh, the patient learns what he needs to learn about what's being recommended. The physician learns what he needs to know about uh, priorities for the patient and, and what's important to them uh, because ultimately it is their decision. Yeah, no, that's, that sounds really important. And the other thing I've heard you talk about is it is important that the person who is going to be doing the procedure be deeply involved in the informed consent process. And I've been, as, as a patient and also as a risk manager, in scenarios where I've seen informed consent that's probably excessively delegated. And maybe you might touch on some things that you would recommend against. Uh, what, what might be considered excessive delegation where it's not truly the, the, the health care provider who's doing the procedure involved? I think sometimes we forget that it is actually part of the law that the person that's recommending the treatment or recommending a procedure is the one who needs to do the process of informed consent. Now that can be aided by any number of other people or aids, whether it's uh, um, pamphlets or watching videos, or whether other people go through the process again with them or the, or the uh, paper that is there. Uh, but ultimately the primary physician is the one who is charged with actually conducting the process for a procedure or for a recommended medical treatment. I think that's another important point is that the uh, informed consent requirement applies both to medical treatments and to surgical treatments. Yeah, and that's an interesting area. We know that there's a lot of high-risk areas in surgery, neurosurgery, things around the spine, probably eye surgery, and uh, OBGYN. In my area, uh, cognitive skills, uh, primary care internal medicine, uh, we also have informed consent in some of the areas where since working at Copic, I've gotten much better using informed consent are chronic opioid patients, corticosteroid patients, uh, some long-term antibiotic patients, uh, anticoagulation. And I've found that what I've really developed is, is patients who better understand the, the care and treatment that I'm giving them. They seem to be more invested, and although I don't have scientific data, at least anecdotally, anecdotally, they seem to be, more, to be more compliant with the care and treatment I give them. Well, and certainly the issues that you mentioned, uh, we actually recommend considering using a form for those because they are higher risk. But anytime you're recommending a new treatment and specifically uh, prescribing a, a medication, uh, an informed consent process will not only inform the patient better, but it uh, can be shown that uh, their compliance with that recommended treatment will improve as well. 
and it's important to keep in mind an essential element of the informed consent process is really assessing the patient's understanding as well as their capacity to make the decision. And uh, there are specific techniques for that. I'm sure we're all familiar with the teach-back method where you give the patient the information and then ask them specific questions about that information to make sure they understand what you were talking about. Because if they don't, they're very unlikely to question you right there. They're more likely to ask friends or to research on the Internet. They may not get the type of uh, information that would be important for them to make a, a realistic decision. Yeah, and, and certainly in fairness to our patients, if we use medical jargon and graduate school level terms, uh, that can confuse them and probably during the general disoriented nature of a, of a physician's exam room, they're uh, outside of their natural element, uh, it's probably not a fair situation to put them in. Correct. I think it is important to remember the essential elements of the informed consent process which is not only describing the recommended treatment, but making sure the indications for that treatment are understood, uh, the risks associated with that, the potential benefits to be reaped from that, alternative uh, to not proceeding, and the risks of not proceeding, um, and then the assessment of understanding. The, the area that I don't understand really well, and I'm not telling you to give a, a, a full legal discourse on this, but this does come up from time to time, which is what does a physician or whoever the healthcare provider is, what do they need to, to disclose about themselves when they're doing a procedure? Well, uh, there you have two concepts that are butting up against each other. So certainly we have the patient's right to know and the right to informed consent, but we also have the provider's right to their own protected health information. So if it's regarding the physician's health, uh, that doesn't need to be disclosed if there's been proper vetting of the privileges and credentials wherever they're working. Uh, if it has to do with their own interests, uh, in Colorado at least there is a, a website which we have to uh, fill out every time we renew our license that goes through those issues and the patients have ready access to that. Yeah, now that, that certainly sounds like an appropriate balance and important to understand we don't have to tell everything about ourselves but uh, patients definitely deserve to know that we're adequately and appropriately credentialed and we don't have some really strong conflict of interest in what we're doing. And they may be reassured by describing that process which you know is a fair, fairly thorough vetting and uh, I think is fair to both the patient and the provider. Yeah no that sounds good. Well, you have a, a, a list of some important summary points that we had talked about uh, prior to starting this recording, and I think those are really a, a, a useful way to summarize this topic. So if you don't mind hitting those, those main point uh, summary topics, I think that would be really useful to people listening to this. So just to revisit, uh, again, keeping in mind the difference between the paper and the process. Uh, the paper is the documentation that the process occurred. If there is ever an allegation uh, about an inadequate informed consent process or a negligent informed consent process, what we rely on is the documentation to defend against that allegation. The process, though, is, is how we can best avoid that allegation of negligent informed consent so that if we follow the elements of the process, which includes being uh, performed by the uh, treating physician, 
that the uh, risks of the procedure, the in uh, indication for the procedure, the nature of the procedure, alternatives, risks of not proceeding uh, are all included in the process. And then if we do an adequate job of assessing the patient's understanding and coming to the whole idea of a shared decision making which takes into account the patient's primary concerns, then we can recruit those benefits that uh, uh, we want for our patients, which is improved outcomes, improved satisfaction, and addressing the possibility of disclosing a subsequent complication. Well, I'm gonna go with the glasses half full on that one, Dr. Vardell. I really appreciate your thoughts on informed consent, and thank you all for listening to us. Thank you, I've enjoyed it very much.